standing up for sex-based civil rights in education. Lessons from the Tuskegee Study and tools of medical healthcare being turned to tools of social justice. Welcome to Fair News Weekly. To read all of the articles discussed in this podcast, please visit this podcast episode description. Dear Friends of Fair, this week we submitted a comment in response to proposed changes to regulations based on Title IX of the Civil Rights Act posted by the U.S. Department of Education this past July. Title IX of the Civil Rights Act prohibits federally funded educational institutions from discriminating on the basis of sex. It says, No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. The department's proposed changes add self-determined gender identity as a protected trait for purposes of both sex discrimination and sex-based harassment, require schools and universities with sex-segregated facilities and activities to allow individuals to access activities and spaces that align with their gender identity as opposed to their biological sex, and obligate school and university employees to report conduct that may constitute sex discrimination with no requirement of a reasonable belief that the conduct rises to the level of prohibited sex discrimination. While the authors note that the changes are intended to provide an educational environment free from discrimination, in reality, they would undermine Title IX's protections and create a number of practical and philosophical issues for schools, parents, and students. For instance, educational institutions with sex-specific facilities or activities, which is virtually all of them, would be required to segregate students based on gender identity rather than biological sex. This would mean that any student anywhere in the United States who chooses to self-identify as a girl or woman, regardless of biological sex, must be placed on female sports teams, live in all-female housing, participate in female-only sex education classes, be eligible for school-sponsored scholarships reserved for females, and use communal locker rooms and other facilities designated for females. Farrah's position is simple. Every person should be treated as a unique and intrinsically valuable individual. We should address topics such as gender with comparison and respect for all. And we should recognize the scientific reality of biological sex with respect to policies and provisions in schools and institutions. The decision of whether to segregate students based on sex or gender identity should be left to the democratic process, whether at the federal, state, or local level, and not mandated unilaterally by the executive branch of the federal government, which the proposed amendments to Title IX would in effect do. This is why we oppose these amendments, and have provided our own recommended changes that would help ensure dignity and compassion for all without undermining Title IX's protections, and without relinquishing what we know about the scientific and practical realities of sex differences. Yours, Byne Bartning. This week on our Substack, Kobe Nelson writes about many parents who feel understandably frustrated with the lack of curricular transparency in schools, and teachers who feel like they have been unwittingly caught in a culture war, which has stripped them of their expertise. Nelson explores the possibility of self-empowerment and constructive rather than destructive self-talk as the potential solution to this lack of trust. If we contextualize ourselves, 
Nelson states, in a way that is negative or antagonistic, we will inevitably fall into this pattern when engaging with others. This kind of self-talk is what professor and rhetorician Eric Smith discusses when he writes about intrapersonal empowerment. According to Smith, the intrapersonal serves as both a key to the door of empowerment and the ability to walk through that door. To put it simply, the way we regard ourselves internally affects the way we interact with the world around us. This is important to think about, especially when there is declining trust within a community over difficult issues. For the New York Times, Fair Advisor John McWhorter writes about what he calls the fashionable ideology of our movement, in which we're encouraged to think it's somehow anti-racist to excuse black and brown people from being measured by standardized testing, and how other factors can and should be considered to explain disparities in test scores between racialized groups. McWhorter writes, Let's recognize, then, that calling something like a credentialing exam racist is crude. It flies past issues more nuanced and complex. Heath's study doesn't have all the answers, and there are many working-class homes in which children are prepared with the conversational and analytical skills required to excel on standardized tests. But we might absorb the reality that circumstances will leave some people better poised to take tests than others, and that will mean pass rates on such tests will differ according to race, at least for a while. For the Network Contagion Research Institute, Fair Advisor Pamela Pereski joins Alex Goldenberg, John Farmer, Lee Jessam, Ph.D., Lori Sutton, M.D., Danit Finkelstein, Christian Ramos, and Joel Finkelstein, Ph.D., to describe research suggesting that a community promoting self-harm, specifically cutting, is circulating graphic and bloody depictions of self-injury on Twitter, and that the vast majority of this content is in direct violation with Twitter's suicide and self-harm policy. Twitter hosts a massive community that glorifies and encourages self-harm, specifically cutting. Graphic photographs of what appear to be bloody self-injury by people who have sliced into their skin continues to proliferate. Many such tweets garnering unusually high engagement given the small number of followers of the posting account. Photographs and other images are accompanied by slang terms for blood as well as for the depth, pattern, and complexity of cuts. Photographs depicting wounds that are bloodier and more severe, more dangerously deep, and more complex in number and or design of cuts are more widely circulated than those that depict less serious wounds. For Law and Liberty, Aaron Preston writes that while many across the political spectrum often invoke Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy, any serious consideration of the deeper beliefs that guided him in his approach to social justice are strangely omitted. Preston says, Although Nussbaum pays considerable attention to King's moving vision of a just society as elevated in his famous I Have a Dream speech, her emphasis is on cultivating the emotions to which King's vision naturally inclines us, rather than cultivating the belief in the vision itself. But to focus on King's rhetorical choices and their emotional impact in isolation from their doxastic bases is to cast King as a sophist, rather than the philosophically trained theologian that he was. Indeed, the fundamental differences between King and practitioners of common enemy identity politics are not rhetorical or methodological, but metaphysical. The reason King spoke as he did and the reason he practiced common humanity identity politics is that he had a clear philosophical vision of our common humanity, understood not merely as an inspiring phrase or idea, but as a bedrock reality. 
For Jewish Journal, Monica Osborne writes that the teachers who most profoundly impacted her life were those that made it possible for her to be fully human, to think and ask questions, to always remain curious, and to continually ask whether there is another interpretation, and how our current culture of education as political activism has made those kinds of teachers all too rare. Osborne states, Over the past few years, it seems that what I considered ideals for a teacher are now seen as dangerous. It's dangerous to let children, adolescents, and young adults think for themselves or ask too many questions. It's dangerous to allow them to form their own opinions that may deviate from the politics of their teacher or institution. They should vote the same, feel the same about every issue, from how to fight racism to how to define a woman to the limits of abortion. And they should all become activists in all segments of their lives. They should chant and adopt mantras that prove their allegiance to the political activism they are being taught. The editors of Free Black Thought take a deep dive into diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in an effort to make available for parents, educators, and all who care about K-12 education information about some of the potentially harmful ideas and practices around race that have become increasingly prevalent in K-12 education. The editors detail specific issues with DEI practices and offer ideas for better alternatives, such as fair diversity and fair advisor Sheena Mason's Theory of Racelessness. We at Free Black Thought, they write, are confident that a better world is possible. We are also quite certain that the existing DEI industry does not have the practical or conceptual resources to help us create it. We hope that the alternatives to DEI that we've presented here inspire you. We truly believe that we can heal the wounds inflicted on our society by bigotry past and present, so long as we all focus on and affirm what we all share as Americans and as human beings, created equal. Our children are depending on us to do so. For his substack, Bastiat's Window, Farron Medicine fellow Robert Grabois wrote about the Tuskegee Experiment, formerly the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male, and how, rather than being bygone history, it is a cautionary tale for our own time. He writes, We today do not inhabit an enlightened world where the ethical breaches described above are merely quaint relics of a benighted past. Collective good over the sanctity of individual lives may be again on the ascent. In 2021, the American Medical Association and the Association of American Medical Colleges resurrected the Harvey Jordan Abraham Flexner vision in their Advancing Health Equity, a guide to language, narrative, and concepts. This document implored doctors to shift the narrative, from the traditional biomedical focus on the individual and their behavior to a health equity focus on the well-being of communities. As technology and bioethics researcher Christine Rosen said of the document, the tools of the medical profession are to be turned not to better healthcare, but to social justice. This October, we invite you to the second session of our Parent Education Series workshops. Due to overwhelming demand, we are hosting a second session of our four-part workshop, where we will share an overview of the current K-12 educational landscape, summarize key issues interfering with students' civil rights, and train parents and guardians in effective, pro-human advocacy, including supporting children and teens in developing healthy attitudes around race and identity. This four-part session takes place on October 3rd, 10th, 17th, and 24th, and registration is capped at 30 participants, so sign up now to secure your spot. Registration in the description. 
Join Farron Medicine on Monday, September 9th at 5 p.m. Eastern for our webinar, a conversation with Dr. Erica Anderson and Grace Ladinsky-Smith, a pro-human approach to adolescent gender dysphoria. This conversation is moderated by FAIR advisor Xander Kegg and will explore a pro-human approach to transgender healthcare. Registration is free and open to all. Link in the description. Do you want to share the message with FAIR but are worried about starting a fight? There is a better way. Empower yourself with the knowledge and skills to have better conversations, share FAIR's pro-human message, and engage without risking your relationships. Register today for a highly interactive live virtual training happening on September 20th and October 25th. Registration can be found in the description. We want the FAIR Substack to be the go-to publication for diverse perspectives on culture and civil rights. Whether you're a seasoned author or an amateur writer with a story that can contribute to our mission of promoting fairness, understanding, and humanity, we would love to receive your stories, opinions, investigations, reviews, interviews, and more. Send your piece to submissions at fairforall.org. We hope to hear from you. Finally, if you liked this podcast, subscribe, share it with a friend, and leave us a rating and review. Make sure to check out our newsletter and weekly roundup to read more into any of this week's stories, or visit the episode description. Donations are always welcome at fairforall.org donate.